You're listening to the Moonlighters, the Yale Internal Medicine Podcast. Talking with expert guests, dropping expert knowledge. This is your morning report fix on the radio. Your daily dose of internal medicine. I just came up with that. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Moonlighters. This is part two of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy here with uh, Dr. Kobe. So let's jump right back in. All right. Yeah, so, you know, we see on the, this patient's echo that he, uh, he sort of checks all the boxes and, and, you know, the big spoiler alert is he does indeed have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So to summarize, this is our 37-year-old male, history of syncope, family history of, sounds like, sudden cardiac death, along with consistent EKG and echo findings that are concerning for familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So taking a step back, Dr. Jacoby, can you explain a little bit more about what exactly familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is? How does it happen? Who gets it? What's its inheritance? That sort of stuff? Yeah. So you already, you kind of laid it out a little bit. So you called it familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So most hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is familial. Not all, though. There are sporadic cases of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In there are those types of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that, although familial, don't follow a typical autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. The classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that we all think about is autosomal dominant, it is familial, and you can usually find many members in any given family who have it. There are known inherited forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that follow a more recessive pattern. There are those that are caused, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that are caused by mitochondrial mutations that follow a mitochondrial pattern. And then there are those sporadic cases that come up that are probably still genetic, but oligogenetic, meaning that they're probably, they require sort of multiple hits from mom and dad and are hard to pass on and hard to inherit. And those are kind of the sporadic cases. And then there are probably somatic cases where people just get it because of something that happens over the course of time. But those are poorly defined. I will tell you something that I think is very interesting that's come out Every single time this has been looked at, and most recently, circulation, August 2018, paper from the SHARE registry, which define a humongous population of HCM patients, and very clearly defined that if you have a sarcomere mutation, sarcomere genes encode for the key proteins that lead to muscle contraction, that if you have a sarcomere mutation that you know is pathogenic, that is, you know this causes disease, versus if you have the absence of that mutation, but still have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, your prognosis is worse. So just having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with the sarcomere mutation means that your overall prognosis is going to be worse than if you don't have that mutation. And I think what that's telling us is that these are not really the same disease, you know, or, okay, they're subtypes of the same disease. Just to give you an idea, in my clinic, 37.8% 37.8% of patients who undergo genetic testing come up with a positive mutation in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The lion's share of those are sarcomere mutations, though we do have a few others. And so you're looking at over 60% of patients coming in with clinical diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who don't have a sarcomere mutation are not the classic type of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Some of those patients have family members who've been diagnosed. Many of them don't. And so the ability to advise those patients about the course of their disease, how to screen family members, and so on, is still in evolution. When you talk about disease prevalence, people say one in 500, one in 300, one in 250. If everybody in the United States got an MRI and we use a fine-tooth comb to find everybody, it would probably be closer to one in 200 people with this. But the thing I've been surprised about is, over time, 
what you realize when you're a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy doctor is that a lot of people that you're walking around next to actually have it. And they don't really necessarily tell you, but after a while it kind of comes out. Wow. And so you just see in your community, at your work, there's these people walking around with HCM, old people, young people. So it's pretty common and it's the most common heart muscle specific disease. Now here's, I'm gonna go out on a limb. I think it may even be more common than dilated cardiomyopathy as a population, as an overall population. Yeah. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go on about that. With yeah. how common it has become, and you mentioned with increased sort of imaging modalities imaging, yeah. and more yeah. and better sensitivity for these things, is that sort of prevalence that you mentioned, is that consistent with actual symptomatology? Or are you yeah. finding that folks are being diagnosed but are otherwise, you know, they just happen to have 15 millimeters on their... Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is we're diagnosing it now, but it's less meaningful potentially be- for the patient because we're, yeah. There's actually another paper from the SHARE registry which looks at temporally the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy over time. The overall message of it is exactly what you're saying, that we're diagnosing more mild disease as time goes by. And that's not that surprising. It does raise a lot of questions about the utility of making the diagnosis and what the diagnosis means. So you put this case together, you know, saying, okay, this is a good patient to talk about, young guy, sudden death, family history. I mean, those cases are the actually less common cases that you get nowadays mm-hmm. than the cases of when you get a lot of like, oh, geez, you know, the, there's like 1.489 centimeters on the MRI with a little bit of LGE, kind of funny EKG. And you sort of say, poof, who cares? Person's <laughs> fine, you know. She'll let him just do whatever. But so here's the flip side of that. The same paper in CERC that I told you about that was published online in August 2018 defines a natural history of disease as being more severe than had been previously thought. And that incorporates a ton of patients who've been more recently diagnosed. The same exact week that that paper was published, there was an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that suggested that it's one of the most benign diseases around. In fact, if you have it, you might actually live longer than a normal person in the general population who doesn't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There may be some, actually some strange sort of benefit to having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the paper from Cher, and I was part of that paper, so I guess I'm biased to think that that was the right information, was that there's, I think it was like a 1.3 or something like that, increased risk of mortality of having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy versus the U.S. population overall. And if you had sarcomere, it was worse. And then over the course of your lifetime, if you were diagnosed before age 40, worse. Mm-hmm. And the incidence of atrial fibrillation, heart failure, and ventricular arrhythmia are very, very high, particularly if you're diagnosed younger. If you have diagnosis before age 40, your instance of having atrial fibrillation is like, I can't remember the exact curve, it's maybe like 70 or 80% by the time you're 70 years old. So normally, like we say, okay, if you're 80, on average, 20% of people have atrial fibrillation. So that's a really, really big difference. Yeah. And we know atrial fibrillation is significant morbidity. So say it was stroke, you have to take medications, it's bad. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm kind of trying to thread the needle and say, yeah, we're diagnosing a lot of people who don't have severe disease. But on the flip side, it's not really a totally benign disease. Like, I mean, okay, given the choice, would you rather have an EF of 10% in dilated cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Yeah, you'd probably rather have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as long as it's not too severe. But 5% or 3% of people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy come on, come on to heart transplant, severe heart failure and heart transplant, and there's a lot of morbidity associated with it. Mm-hmm. 
We'll definitely have to have a would you rather episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather? <laughs> yeah, I like that. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, so many mind-blowing facts there. I didn't know it was so common. Uh, John's sweating. Did sweating. someone get an echo machine in here? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I was like, wow, this is going to be the first, like, specialty episode we have where we have a specific disease. It's not, yeah. but it doesn't seem like that well. Well, so that's actually an interesting point because if you look at the way drugs are approved in the U.S., there's a rare disease designation, which turns out to be really, really helpful for companies to develop medications to diseases that are not super common, like hypertension, diabetes. Because otherwise, what's the point of developing? It costs a lot of money, a billion dollars to bring a drug to market, or 500 million. And if your population that you're treating is small, no one wants to do it. So you have to have a streamlined pathway. You have to be able to charge a lot for your drugs. So there's two particular diseases that are in that pathway that have novel therapeutics coming up. One is HCM. The other one is amyloidosis. So both of those diseases, although given rare disease designation by the FDA and thought of as rare diseases, are relatively common. For hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there's a lot of patients who are relatively asymptomatic, but if you had the choice to take a drug that could remodel your heart and make it look normal, most people are going to want to be on that, particularly if there's an increased mortality signal with not being on that. It's complicated. These diseases, when you look for them, tend to be more around the more you look for them. And if you, it's like a vocabulary word. Someone tells you tintinabulation, like, okay, like now you like, oh my gosh, everybody's saying tintinabulation now. Like, no one ever said it before. Uh, could you define that, please? I think it means a celebration, does it not? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's the first time I've heard it. So we'll all get echoes after this? And yeah, we'll all look yeah. up the definition. Have, of yeah, not in that order. I'm going yeah. right for tintinabulation. <laughs> so... You know, we do have this case here, but I mean, it could be any one of the cases that come to your office with HCM. So, Dr. Jacoby, you made the diagnosis, the patient's sitting in front of you, you know, their family members are in the room, and he's wondering, like, how is this going to affect him? Like, what do you tell the patients? Yeah. And after kind of what you tell them, like, how do you counsel them on treatment? Yeah, this is the hardest part. So uh, that's why the visits take a long time because now we're a 37-year-old guy. He passed out on the basketball court. He has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and you're telling him now, well, what are we going to do for you? So when I work in my clinic, I have a dot phrase that I use in Epic for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it goes from what's the diagnosis, what's the New York Heart Association class, what's a sudden death risk, is there obstruction, how severe it is, how should we treat it? Do they have atrial fibrillation or arrhythmias? How should we treat it? Do they have diastolic dysfunction? How should we treat it? Family counseling, have we talked to them about their family risk? Uh, genetic counseling, have we talked to them about their genetic risk, offer them genetic testing? What about ACC, AHA guidelines with regards to exercise, participation in sports activities? And then what of any other testing or follow-up do they need and what's the prognosis? So I go through that with every patient. Usually almost every visit, once you get things established, they don't seem to change that much. So the way I would do it is the most important thing at that visit is you give them the diagnosis and you want to prevent the guy from dying because you already tried to die once. In this setting, we have two sudden deaths in the family and you have that episode. You really don't even need a halter or an exercise test or an MRI to tell you that the guy's high risk. Mm -hmm. But if you want to, you can go to the European Society of Cardiology Risk Calculator, which is a good risk calculator. There's now an AHA or ACC risk calculator. You can look at the spreadsheets and look for sudden death risk. And I think this patient probably needs to have really strongly considered getting an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. And I use EP for that. They need to do shared decision-making. They need to know the pros and cons. They need to know the different types of, of pacemakers, defibrillators that, that can be utilized. 
and they needed to go through a complicated decision-making process because they're going to be managing this for the rest of their lives. Then um, genetic counseling, we do that. We have a genetic counselor we work with on that. That's not something to just do on the fly because there's legal, there's economic implications of that, and then there's family implications. And then probably the thorniest issue has been how to advise patients around sports participation. The Bethesda guidelines came up with um, recommendations for sports participation in <clears throat> patients with arrhythmic diseases, hypertrophic cardiomyopathies in there. The recommendation was to avoid all competitive sports activity, rapid start, stop activities. There's even a notation in there, perhaps it might not be a good idea to ride a roller coaster and uh, other such kinds of activities. Lately, we've realized that this is probably overkill in a lot of cases, or maybe another way to look at it is to say the data that that was based on was not the greatest data. It was the best data available at the time, but it wasn't the greatest data. You know, someone did a study. There was a study done, I think uh, my, Rachel might have done this. I can't remember who did this. Maybe Charlene Day. They partnered with the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, which is a patient organization, and they did a survey on the website of people's diagnosis, what they were advised about in terms of exercise, and they looked at their BMIs, diabetes, hypertension. And sure enough, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients were fatter, had more hypertension and diabetes than the general population because they had been advised not to exercise. Mm -hmm. So what's the mortality associated with that? Yeah, really. So you have to advise patients about all this stuff and give them some guidelines, individualize it. And for a 37-year-old guy who likes to play basketball, tell the guy he's going to be a couch potato, I wouldn't do. It's a complicated conversation, and we, we do these things all the time. Those are basically the general the way that I would deal with it. And I would have the patient get an MRI. Um, I would have them get a halter to make sure there's no atrial arrhythmias. I would have them go to an EP doctor. I would do the genetic counseling. I'd have them come back in three months to discuss all this. And then after that, if everything's stable, here's the bonus. Nothing changes that quickly in HCM. For a 20-year-old, maybe different. But for most 37-year-olds, it's going to change very slowly over time. So you're very happy for them to come back in a year and get an echo. And sometimes if the patient has very mild disease, two years echo, we don't even really know. Nick Papatsidakis and I, we looked at echoes, clinical changes over multiple years. And what we found out is that if you have neurocard class one and not severe hypertrophy, you could get an echo every year. Nothing changes over four years. So we say the ACCHA recommends an echo every year. So maybe you don't need to do that. But some kind of tailored follow-up for the patient after you've done these early repeated visits. As you're monitoring these patients, so let's say you get your your fifth echo down the line and your thickest thieves with, with Mr. H at this point, if you're starting to see change, what are you doing about it? That's always the worst. Honestly, the hardest part of medicine is telling someone who you've kind of like reassured and told them everything's okay that things are actually not okay. It's terrible. But you just, you know, the, the guidelines are what I just told you. If the guy's EF is starting to drop, you have a bad situation. If he gets AFib, he goes on anticoagulation, try to get him back in sinus rhythm. If he didn't have a defibrillator and he starts having VT, you have to have that conversation with him. Uh, if he develops symptoms and obstruction, you have to have that conversation. If it's diastolic dysfunction, what do you treat for diastolic dysfunction? Nothing. Spernolactone, blood pressure control. There's not much you can do, but you try to make him feel better. And you talk to him about his prognosis. Sometimes I'll get cardiopulmonary exercise tests to quantify the exercise capacity in these patients to kind of reassure both them and myself that it's not severe. Uh, but if it is severe, and we've done, I don't know, 10 or 15 HCM transplants in the last few years because sometimes that's what happens. I'd say less than 5% of patients with HCM overall. I have like 600 patients under follow with HCM, and maybe we've transplanted, I'll say 15 at Yale. So what is that? It's like 
600 would be six. That's like yeah, th- th- less than 3%. So that's probably about the percent. Also to dovetail off that, as you're surveilling your patient, how often are you doing surveillance on the family members? Oh, great question. So the Heart Fair Society of America, American College of Cardiology, the European Society of Cardiology all have recommendations with regards to family follow-up and inherited diseases. And the general recommendation is that you do it kind of yearly when they're young, maybe every other year as they get older, every three years, every five years as they get older, with no necessarily stop point for follow-up. Although after age 50 or 60, the likelihood of developing disease goes way, way, way down. At that point, most people have cardiologists for other reasons, though, so they still want to keep seeing you. It's incredibly burdensome. I mean, imagine if you had to go to the cardiologist every year for an echo at the age of, from the ages of 20 to 25. No one wants to do that. It's horrible. So that's the benefit of genetic testing. You can sometimes say, listen, you don't have to worry. We have a lot of patients over 60% who don't have a genetic test, so you're screening all those family members. It's a huge burden on the health system and on the patients. But ideally, you'd be able to tell people not only are they going to develop it, but how severe is it going to be and should they be on treatment to try to prevent the development of it. All right, Dr. Jacoby. So we have this patient. He's got a new diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We've been following him for a few years now. Over the years, you know, he does tell you that he's starting to have a little bit more symptoms, some more dyspnea on exertion. At what point do you start thinking about certain medications targeted to um, treating his hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? I know you said, you know, treat the diastolic dysfunction if he has it, treat the AFib if he has it, you know, put an ICD in if he's having VT. But are there specific meds that you think of in the absence of those other kind of comorbidities or the other physiologies that you would start for a patient like this? Yeah. So the usual medications for obstruction are beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, and disopyramide. Those are the medications that we have right now. Beta blocker is beta blocker. Uh, The calcium channel blocker that has been tried is verapamil. And disopyramide is an antiarrhythmic that has negative onotropic effect. And so I usually go down the list. I'll start with beta blocker. If it's ineffective, I may... I'll increase the dose. I may add verapamil or I may change the verapamil. If still no good result, I'll have a conversation with the patient about whether they'd like to try disopyramide. I do admit patients for that. Mm-hmm. I admit them to the hospital to be started on disopyramide because of the QT prolongation issues and theoretical sudden death risk, although there's lots of protocols where people don't do that. And then if you don't get a good result of the patient, frequently disopyramide causes a lot of urinary retention, dry eyes, and this kind of thing. For older patients, it's not so great. So I'll end up discussing what we call septal reduction therapies, SRT. And there's surgical septal reduction therapy, and there's alcohol ablation or cath-based septal reduction therapy. And there's a lot of discussion about which one is better. Every time you look, really the only thing that matters is whether the operator is making good decision-making and whether they have experience. And, you know, obvious other things, like if you also need a cabbage, you should go to surgery. If you also need to have your mitral valve repaired, you should go to surgery. You know, if you have three-centimeter hypertrophy, alcohol ablation is not a good idea. You should go to surgery. And there are certain things like that. At Yale, we have a good myectomy surgeon, and we have uh, in our cath lab somebody who's good and experienced with alcohol ablation, so we do both. Pacemaker utilization has fallen away as an unfavored uh, pathway that we'd never do as primary treatment for this. Do these folks become pacer-dependent after myectomy? Uh, the literature would suggest probably 5 to 10% uh, pacer requirement post-alcohol septal ablation 
No, it's probably probably less than five percent in like real experienced hands. And surgical myectomy, some patients get pacemaker dependent also, but it's probably a bit less than that. Then in terms of other medications for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sadly there's really not much out there other than these new therapies. You know, with the with alcohol ablation or surgical myectomy, what you have to realize is that there's no mortality data associated with it. So you're taking someone and exposing them to mortality risk without offering them a mortality benefit. I personally feel like you have to be really, really sure that the person understands that and is really symptomatic uh, and you've tried really everything that's reasonable to try in order to to really offer someone that therapy. So we do that here at Yale and um, hopefully in the future there'll also be medication that we can put into the mix to treat this more effectively than say beta blockers. By the way, there's only one evidence-based beta blocker for this, which is propranolol. And that study was published by our very own Lawrence Cohen in like 1969 <laughs> or 1968, wow. a study of a few patients from NIH with Eugene Brownwald. So oh, cool. that's a cool little tidbit. Was so that the only you... beta blocker at the time? Or? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Just, just a note for uh, the, the house staff out there listening tonight. When these patients are getting admitted, what are just some common management plans, things to keep in mind on the inpatient setting? And what are some pitfalls that you can avoid in co-managing these patients with cardiology? I just want to say I've never seen a Yale resident ever make a mistake. Mm. <laughs> I want to start off by saying that. You haven't worked that. with any of us yet. I don't, oh, you worked with Keith, so he's still good. You didn't see them. You didn't see them. Yeah, so, so uh, you know... You shouldn't be nervous to take care of an HCM patient because they're not fragile in that way. Like, oh, if I do this, they're going to – something horrible is going to happen. That's not really HCM. The obvious things are kind of obvious. It's not a sort of a cookie cutter for that patient if they have heart failure symptoms. You're going to want to tease through all the stuff we talked about today because if the patient has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction, the treatment for symptoms is a little bit different than it is if they have non-obstructive HCM. Obstructive HCM, which is somewhere between one-third and two-third of patients, if they have shortness of breath, that could be best treated by trying to relieve the obstruction. Whereas the non-obstructives, those patients, you're going to treat like heart failure preserved ejection fraction. So the complicated piece is the overlap, where you get patients who have obstruction, but there also have significant diastolic dysfunction. And you need to use diuretics, but that's also worsening their obstruction, and you can get into kind of a, a complicated situation over there. Um, but I think when you get that kind of case, it's a good one to kind of pull in console services on and say, hey, how should we manage this particular instance of, of symptoms and heart failure? Maybe the hospitalization is a good opportunity to kind of help the patient look at the big picture Usually when a person gets hospitalized, it's a sentinel event for them. They're not happy. It's a, it's a brush with life and death. And it can occasionally be an opportunity for you to sit down at the bedside and kind of run through those eight things that I told you about. What's a sudden death risk? Have you thought about genetics? Have you thought about your kids? Have you thought about your exercise activity? Have you thought about your prognosis? Have you thought about atrial fibrillation? And the last thing I'll say is, you can get a genetics consult on the inpatient service. There is a cardiac genetics consult that you can get. So don't be afraid. My, my take-home point is don't be afraid of messing up 
when it comes to a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient, you know all the key points. It's not a fragile patient. You're going to have to take the time to go through everything, but just use your head and figure out which batch of HCM they fall into and then take it from there. So, uh, you know, I just want to say, Dr. Jacoby, thanks for joining us today. I know I feel like uh, so much intricate knowledge was dropped here and very helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful to the listeners out there. And then Keith, you know, thanks for being a guest host today. To the cardiology fellowships out there, you know, Keith is an A-plus student, so please uh, accept him into your fellowship program. Great effort and conduct. Yeah. Plays well with others. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thanks again. Appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me here. It was lots yeah. of fun. Good job, you guys, on, on doing this kind of stuff. Thanks for listening to The Moonlighters. We'll see you next time.